You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. Good morning. Welcome to University Baptist Church. If this is the first time you're here, welcome back if you've been here extensively. Did you have a fun weekend? Homecoming? Uh, second, uh, five and one? Or six and one? Okay. Not a lot of you guys sports fans. Change of topics. Um... Thought I would try, you know, big weekend. Uh, I want to say a word about the sermon text, which was Isaiah 53. Um, I picked this. This is, I would fall in the category of monumental Christian text. And perhaps this one, because of the way it gets appropriated theologically by the New Testament, in terms of typology, this is one of the more gigantic. Of course, Isaiah 53 is a, a um, we use this as a description of Jesus as a suffering servant. I will say if you step back from the, the Bible theologically and look at it for what it is and think there's nothing uh, miraculous about it, it is one of the more potent prognosticating texts. And so one of the first things I did this week was just ask myself the question, what could Isaiah 53 have possibly meant to the author of Isaiah? Because um, though it's easy for us to say, well, this is a description of Jesus, even if we think this author was God-inspired, um, he or she couldn't have possibly had Jesus in mind. And what I mean by that is Rome as the nation state it was when Jesus was crucified didn't exist. Crucifixion as a means of execution systematically for, you know, foreign criminals wasn't in place. And so just the imagination it would have taken for somebody to know, and this is a description of Jesus, is almost insurmountable. So historical, historical critically, um, some folks have suggested, and, and Kieran let me in on this, that perhaps this is a description of Cyrus, who is the uh, great deliverer of Israel from the hands of the Babylonians, the Persian king. And if you read it that way, it's, it's interesting. Nonetheless, um, given what it is or it is not in its historical context, I will say for ex-evangelicals, a growing group in this country, um, when I d- discuss things with them or ask, you know, what's the problem with Christianity, atonement happens to be pretty high up on that list. People have a really hard time conceiving of a God who would need to crucify anyone, let alone his cosmic other, his Trinitarian self, uh, for any kind of redemption. And so that was my primary motivation in picking this text. So admittedly, this is me reworking a sermon I preached a few years ago. I lead off with a story that might be threadbare because I've told it a few times, but um, I think this is potent. And if we can get through this, I think it's very helpful for working through this notion. I grew up in a uh, middle-class home. Um, To give you a few benchmarks, maybe we're a little lower class. We didn't have health insurance or cable. I could care less that we didn't have health insurance. It was excruciating for me that we didn't have cable. Um, Nickelodeon was like MTV for you know young kids. The fact that there was a game show that the loser um, was penalized by having slime fall on their head seemed to me like a form of art on par with the Mona Lisa. Um, anyhow, one of the ways that my family would be conscientious about money is that we would, um, we would be very picky about what we bought in the grocery store. And so we didn't buy things that we didn't need, and we only bought what we considered um, luxuries occasionally. Do I sound funny to you? Okay, I sound very funny to me. Maybe it's like a... Anyways. Um, and so uh, one of the things, and included on that list of things we didn't buy because they were expensive, were what my mom would call sugar cereals. And, um, you know, basically sugar cereals are everything that kids, in fact, like to eat. And so, which uh, my mom, uh, I, I should say, I, um, 
I checked this week and like a box of Cheerios cost the same as Captain Crunch. So now I'm thinking retrospectively, that was a front just to get me to eat healthy cereal. Um, point being, uh, we were a sugar cereal free household growing up. If somebody wanted sugar cereal, they had to use their own hard-earned money to purchase this. Um, well, eventually, I have, I have three siblings. I'm the youngest. My, my brother, who's number two in the pecking order, got a job mowing lawns at a country club, paid six fifteen an hour, which in the early 90s in Talmock, Wisconsin, was good money. And so, um, you know, he, he was rolling in it, and all of a sudden, he had Oakley Blades and guest bibs and Sony Walkmans, and his life was very good. But a real sign of, of opulence is that my brother Jimbo occasionally would buy himself a box of Cocoa Pebbles. So uh, the Cocoa Pebbles were very clearly his. I knew this because when I would go to the pantry and open it up and look at my options, his box would have on it a sticky note that said, eat this and die. Um, and so I knew it wasn't my mother's or my dad's. Uh, my oldest sister was already gone to college. And you know my other sister, she didn't have money either. So they were Jimbo's. Um, one morning, I got up to eat and my choices were like oat bran, Cheerios, and like bran rice krispies or something like that. And they're sitting next to them, like a tantalizing mistress, Jezebel herself, was that box of Cocoa Pebbles. And I thought, what if I just pick up the box and look at it? You know, it's got a cartoon bird on it. And so I did that, and I looked, well, I'll just look on the back. They have, you know, like mazes and quizzes. I'll just, you know, my brother won't mind. What if I just take a whiff of the Cocoa Pebbles? That, that won't be a problem, so I do that. Then I reasoned. Uh, you know, there's quite a bit of Cocoa Pebbles in here. If I have a small bowl of Cocoa Pebbles, my brother won't know that a small bowl of Cocoa Pebbles is missing. So I consume those. And then I'm like, well, two small bowls is the size of one bowl. And so I'll just have a second small bowl. And still, one bowl of Cocoa Pebbles. So I did that. And then I, I just kept eating the Cocoa Pebbles. And like Joey, with the cheesecake, it was gone. And I'm like, I'm not even sorry. That was just great. Um, in case you're wondering, if you look on the backs, uh, back of a box of Cocoa Pebbles, the ingredients are um, chocolate, Rice Krispies, and crack. And so um, I lost all contact points with reality. I ate the whole box of Cocoa Pebbles, and it was just the best morning of my life. And I got done, and then the remorse set in. And I looked at this box of empty Cocoa Pebbles, and I thought, oh, crap. Um, you may have grown up with Barney as a mentor, where sharing is caring, I grew up in Lord of the Flies. Absent of parental supervision, the, uh, the, the principles governing sibling relations were minimal. So I came up with a plan. I'm generally regarded as an upstanding citizen in my family. People think I'm truthful. Uh, my sister, on the other hand, the one you know here, a bit of a liar, you know? Um, we have two bathrooms in the house I grew up in. The upstairs bathroom, the one my sisters and mom used, is the, the girls' bathroom. The, Downstairs bathroom was the one my brother and dad used. That was the boys' bathroom. And so I decide I'm going to dispose of the box of Cocoa Pebbles and the bathroom trash in the girls' bathroom. That way, when they're discovered, where do you think the arrows are going to point? So, um, so my brother, the next morning, goes, tries to find his Cocoa Pebbles, opens it up, and like, you know, the jolly green giant, who ate my Cocoa Pebbles? And I freeze and think, oh boy, here we go. So the, the search is ferocious. He's flipping couch cushions. He's opening up the junk drawer. He's looking and, and then he moves his search upstairs. And now I'm getting very nervous about this and my heart sings. And um, he finds the box of Cocoa Pebbles in the trash can. And now I'm thinking retrospectively, I should have, should have just burned the box or something. I would have been so smarter. And Jimbo now is at like a 12 out of 10 on the anger scale. He has a bludgeon in his hand and he's ready to kill, seeking, searching, ready to strike in my dad. 
who has been watching this all unfold, steps in and says, I ate the box of Cocoa Pebbles. I'll buy you two more from the grocery store. And the relief I feel is indescribable. The, the one person for whom this solution did not work was my brother. And this is why. He knew, we all knew, that my dad did not eat the Cocoa Pebbles. My dad ate Cheerios every morning for 45 years. There was no way he deviated and ate all the Cocoa Pebbles. Um, But even more than that, and this is the point, my brother, perhaps more than he wanted his Cocoa Pebbles replaced, he wanted a proper object of wrath, somewhere to put his blame. He wanted a scapegoat, someone who would carry out the violence of the crime done against him. That need... The deep desire for the problem to be rectified through someone else's suffering is a very primal, deep, maybe you say profound instinct that we all have that we will call for the sake of this sermon the cocoa pebbles instinct. Um, Now what I'm going to do is spend a pretty large chunk of the sermon talking about the development of the cocoa pebbles instinct throughout human history and in the human psyche. So bear with me and then we'll return in some way to the text tangentially. Um, Let's start way back in human history. And that can be 10,000 years ago or 600,000 years ago, however you want to see this. Take your pick. Either works for me. We'll start with a person we will call cave woman. Cave woman has the primary task of tending to the garden. As such, she has gotten pretty good at making observations. She's become really observant. And here's what she observes. The plant is dependent on forces outside of itself. There's a great ball of fire that moves across the sky, and that ball of fire, when it gets too hot, can kill the plant. She also notices that when water falls from the sky, um, that this is what the plant needs. Too much of it can drown the plant. Lack of it can dry the plant out. Sometimes you can tell when this rain is coming down. Sometimes you can't. But the plant depends on forces, and she depends on the plant, so she deduces that she depends on the forces. Then there's cave husband. He likes to hunt. He leaves for the hunt. Sometimes he's gone for hours. Sometimes he's gone for days. He returns exhausted, sometimes with or without a kill. He tells stories about the hunt, stories like they have a theme about them. The animals become personified. They start getting characteristics. They sometimes describe the animals of giving themselves over like they wanted to be taken or that they didn't. Um, Other times they chase beasts for days and they're elusive. And so these stories become like the spirit of the hunt and they're unable to control the primal nature of the hunt. And so what cave woman begins to understand is that the plant forces seem similar to the hunting stories. So cave woman observes not just that there's a ball of fire that moves across the sky during the day, but there's a ball of light that moves across the sky at night. And this night ball seems to move through this pattern of of 30 days are 30 occurrences of the day ball of fire. And so cave woman over time has come to understand that her body also has some kind of 30-day cycle rhythm, picking my words very carefully right now, um, and her insides are wired in a pattern that matches the, the night ball in the sky. And she notices that the night ball at certain spots in the month, tends, she tends to have strong feelings for caveman. He, however, never seems to care where the moon is because he always has those feelings. 
if the cave people act on these feelings, what they discover is that sometimes life grows inside of her. And eventually that life becomes so large that it must come out of her, and it does. And when that life force comes out, there's this critical pause where they wait and watch and to see if the new life will share in the life force that moves in and out of their bodies and through the air. And sometimes that new life participates in the life of the wind force, and sometimes it does not. And when the new life fails to breathe, she's reminded that they are all dependent on that life force. Like the ball of fire, like the night ball, like the rain, like the wind. Over time, these names have forces, or they, they, people name the forces. If it doesn't rain, people begin to wonder what happened to the rain guy with the buckets that would dump the water down on them. They wonder if he's busy doing things, and so the forces get personified. In Mesopotamia, they're called El, which is uh, fa- or father god. Uh, Sham is sky god. Baal is the god of lightning. Yom is the god of the waters. The Sumerians called Nin Hursag, the godmother of or the goddess of fertility, and Lil is water, and T is the god of air, Na is the god of moon, Utu is the god of sun, the Babylonians have Marduk, who we've heard of, the god of thunder, the Greeks have people like Artemis, who's the god of hunting, and the goddess of small animals. Seems like a conflict of interest, but we keep going. Point being, you can go across time, in history, in worldviews, and you'll find that there are these similarly named forces. What all these cultures and worldviews have in common is that they need the forces to be generous to them. So one day, one of the cave people says, I have an idea. I think the God forces probably want the same thing that we want. So what if we leave a portion of the garden or a portion of the hunt, and then the forces will see that we're grateful and we will understand that we're indebted. But then they decide that leaving things just scattered willy-nilly might not be the best thing and it seems sloppy. So one day another cave person says this, well, the, the ball of fire across the sky is in the air. And the night ball seems to be in the air, and the rain comes from the air, and the wind blows from up above. It's probable that the gods are up. And so what they do is they gather a pile of rocks, and they set a portion of their crop or their hunt on top of the pile of rocks, and they call it an altar, or it becomes part of the temple. So after the altar is introduced, a kind of neurosis comes with it. This is what happens. Say you put out your standard offering and you have a great year, you have a banner year, you get twice the amount of barley as you planted, or you go set out to hunt for a deer, but you come back with like an elk or a moose, uh, way more than you hoped for, what do you now owe the gods? And then the next year, you put out a little bit more and and you hope for even better, but then your crops fail, or uh, you don't get anything, and you have to ask yourself this question, did I sacrifice enough? Are the gods mad at me? So like, there's a drought, and you offer a standard offering. There's no rain. Three months later, you double down, you offer another offering. Nothing happens. Six months later, you do the same thing. Nothing happens. A year into it, no rain. How much do you have to sacrifice? Because it seems one thing is very clear. The gods aren't very happy. And so the altar produced in the psyche of the first humans this deep anxiety. The question of was it enough begins to haunt human history. The prophets of Baal and the land of Canaan would cut themselves 
to show the gods how devoted they are. They would say, look, I'll harm my body to show you how committed I am to the sacrificial system. Uh, there is a goddess, Kibla, out of Asia Minor, uh, about 5,000 years ago in Turkey. She was a mother goddess. Um, she ha- was eternally procreating on your behalf. So if your crops were doing well, that was Kibla. You got a bonus paycheck, that was Kibla. If you got a positive pregnancy test, praise be to Kibla. Uh, because she's a female goddess, that puts you in a tough position if you're a male. How do you present yourself to her? What can you do? So the tradition becomes uh, that if you want to reach Kibla, you castrate yourself in religious ceremony to show how serious you are. There is evidence in the city of Sardis that there was a spring festival and four to 5,000 males would castrate themselves as a sign of devotion to Kibla, and they put their former selves on the altar of sacrifice. They had a pretty good choir in Sardis. Uh, archaeologists were excavating the Aztec temple Tenotelum, and there, the ev- there was evidence that the Aztecs offered up 42 children as a sacrifice in the 16th century. When the Spanish first encountered the Incan Empire, they discovered they had this practice of, forgive me, capacocha, taking their living children, their living child, they would wrap it in burial cloth, and the child would suffocate as they offered it to the gods. Because the theme across culture, time, and worldviews is that the gods want what is most valuable to you. So if you've tried, what, your flock, you've tried your crops, you've tried your own blood, what's left? your firstborn child, in our own Hebrew Bibles. There's a few references to the god Molech. Uh, What Molech required was that your firstborn was placed on an altar of fire as a sacrifice in worship. In the New Testament, we often hear about Gehenna, Gehenna. It's in the southwest gate of Jerusalem. It's the valley that we often refer to as hell. And um, there was a spot in Gehenna called a Tophet, and it's where these child sacrifices would happen. A rabbi, David Kimhi, has speculated it is called so because the Hebrew word Toph means drum. And he speculates that the high priests would beat the drums, beat the Tophs to drown out the cry of the sacrifice of these children so the parents couldn't hear the cries. The altar was a psychological vortex that took everything from you. The haunting question of have I sacrificed enough, was always there. In Genesis 12, God begins to go to work. And what does God do? God calls Abraham and says, go. And there's a million things that we could say about this first move, the first act by God in the patriarchal history. But here's what's astounding. God says to Abraham, go. So there's this rumor floating around the ancient Near East that someone has talked directly to God. Then it gets more interesting. In Genesis 17, God takes Abraham outside and he says, look up at the sky and and count the stars. And so the stars are overwhelming in this, this speaking directly to God, to a human says, The stars represent how many descendants you're going to have. A little backdrop on this moment, by the way. The story comes out of Sumeria. In Sumeria, Shemesh, the god of the stars, looks at the stars. um, And and this god looks at Shemesh and and uses this god as a pawn in his sermon illustrations. Then it gets more interesting. Fast forward five more chapters to Genesis 22. God tells Abraham to take his one and only firstborn son and offer him up on an altar. Now, we hear this story. And perhaps you're part of a faith tradition that says, wow, what a man of faith. 
you know, prefiguring the Jesus story. But like if you were Abraham's neighbor, you'd call CPS because that's bizarre, right? What's the dissonance? Abraham doesn't say no or ask how because this is how the gods are. Really, the only thing that's surprising about the Abraham-Isaac story is that God hasn't asked this of Abraham sooner than God does now. Then, at the most dramatic moment in that story, God says, stop. And there's a ram in the thicket nearby, and a great reversal of fortune, it is now God who supplies the sacrifice. Let's jump forward another 500 years. Moses is writing the book of Leviticus. Have you read it? Show of hands. You're the three, good job. Um, If you read uh, chapters one through five, you'll find that it's very colorful. Here I'll quote Rob Bell. Uh, He calls it a B-grade slasher film. There's blood everywhere. Uh, The first five chapters are about specific sacrifices. In chapter one, we learn about the Ola sacrifice. And it begins saying, come near to God. Offer an animal, a bull, a goat, or a sheep. Uh, The second chapter is about the miha, or the grain offering. The third chapter is the shalamin offering. We might recognize that word shalom. That's where we get peace. The instruction for the shalomine offering says you put some on the altar, but you keep the rest for a party for you and your friends to celebrate the peace you have with God because the sacrifice is sufficient. In the cultic system of the ancient Near East, you never knew where you stood with the gods. But now in Leviticus 3, There's a way to understand exactly how you can have peace with God. This is a giant leap forward. Um, For the first years, this was such unbelievably progressive and life-giving news. There was a program that finally offered you a way forward so you could gain some steam. If you follow the rules and regulations, you could have a real relationship with the gods. So what happens? Well, it takes off. Israel builds altars, which become temples, first with Solomon, then with Herod, which uses something like 2.3 million stones. Um, The altars then have thousands of priests because it gets complicated. During the festival of Passover, there would be like 200 to 300,000 people that would come from all over and line up to offer sacrifices. Uh, The altar, which had a drain into the Kidron River nearby, would run blood red for days because the blood would just kept coming in and coming in. Now fast forward again for a thousand, few thousand years. The temple has become a lucrative, massive business. The Sadducees get a portion of the offerings and they've gotten very wealthy off this system. Uh, archaeologists have excavated homes of Sadducees and found the modern equivalent of like $5,000 bottles of wine. So this guy, Jesus, arrives on the scene and he says crazy stuff like, Something greater than the temple is here. Uh, The thing that is happening in him is greater than the whole temple system. Then he cleanses the temple. Then he says, destroy the temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And someone objects that the first one took 46 years to build and he says that misses the point. And so the story of Abraham is what? It is a giant leap forward pulling cultural understanding of God and religion with it. And then Leviticus is written. And what is this? It's another giant leap forward in understanding the need for the sacrificial system. And then Jesus shows up and he's about to pull the whole forward system in a completely different way. The Sadducees are making money off of religious fear and guilt. They are tapping into the haunting nature of the vortex of internal anxiety. And so Jesus is up on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them 
for they know not what they are doing. Um, I have to tell you, I have heard that phrase my whole life and always assumed that in this moment Jesus is speaking about those crucifying him, which the tradition would have it is, is all of us, right? That's probably a historical and narratively faithful read, way to read that story. Um, the early church ha- had to make sense of what had happened to Jesus after the resurrection. For the Romans, this was just a, another torturous execution. But for the Christians, this was the moment history had changed. How do I know? Well, there's a person who wrote a book about it in the New Testament called Hebrews. Uh, it's a book that makes sense of Jesus' story in light of the sacrificial system. And here in chapter 10, the author says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled uh, to cleanse us from guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let me offer another translation. The vortex of eternal anxiety of not enough is done. The gods aren't angry anymore. The good news is that you are enough. It is enough. Your effort is enough. You don't have to do anything else. The cocoa pebbles instinct can die because we don't need any more scapegoats. The problem has been rectified. Um, Every once in a while, and this is what I was alluding to at the beginning of the sermon, I'll meet a skeptic, an atheist. I know they're hard to find in the South, but they exist. And, um, you know, I'm very glad to not let them know what I do vocationally, but inevitably they find out, and then for some reason they feel the need to tell me everything they have and have not ever believed, including the fact that they're an atheist. And so there it begins. And then this conversation uh, unravels, unfurls, and we get to the point where they want to give me objections, which I'm not trying to defend anything, but they give them to me anyways. And um, very often they bring up atonement, and they ask the question, why would God have to kill God's son to rectify a sin problem? Uh, That feels absurd, and some take it a step further and say, honestly, atonement just feels to me like a version of cosmic child abuse. Um, And my answer to that is always this. What if God did not kill Jesus? What if we killed Jesus? There's a French philosopher, a guy named René Girard. He died in 2015. Um, He did work in the ethical ethical systems of desire. Um, Girard is most famous for something called mimetic theory or mimetic desire. Here I'm just going to quote him right from Wikipedia because that's about as intense as my research is these days. Uh, He says, All conflict, competition, and rivalry therefore originates in mimetic desire, which eventually reaches destructive stages of conflict, both between individuals and social groups, that requires them to blame someone or something in order to diffuse conflict through the scapegoat mechanism. For Girard, Jesus became the ultimate scapegoat of history. Because if the vortex of anxiety at the altar created by not enough always leaves us second-guessing ourselves, what would happen if we, in fact, finally sacrificed not just our crops, our meat, our blood, our children, but God himself? Would that be enough? Would our conscience finally be sprinkled clean? Richard Rohr has this brilliant quote where he says, Jesus didn't come to change God's mind about us. Jesus came to change our minds about God and what God wants and about what God needs and what about God does not need. 
There was a um, sociologist, a guy named Vincent Dunneman, who in the 70s went to Sub-Saharan Africa. And um, there he, he, at a distance, insofar as he could be integrated, discovered the, the Missa tribe, who is famous for their persistent uh, resistance of everything modern and all forms of modernization. And so um, they're like straight out of an issue of, of National Geographic. So Donovan got to sit down with the elders, and while he was doing this, he noticed there was a man consistently on the outskirts of the village. And um, so the next day he approached the man, and he had a conversation with him, and he asked him about why he was where he was, and the man said, I did some, something terrible years ago. I betrayed my people, and we don't really have a way to deal with what I did, so I'm cut off from my people. That is the results of the Cocoa Pebble Instinct the need to place blame on someone. You know, I think it's easy for us to, to look at the cavemen, to look at the ancient Near East, to look at the Missa tribe, and say that they're really primitive, and, and wonder how they could be that way. But I'm not sure that we're a lot different. Any parents ever have a sick child, and despite what you told yourself you did or didn't believe about providence, all of a sudden you start praying harder and bargaining with God? Anyone ever hurt someone and, and try and punish yourself for it? Do you ever find yourself in this place where you don't feel like you can com completely amend for something you've done wrong, a mistake you've made, like you need to carry that guilt around because you deserve it? That is the Cocoa Pebble instinct. And when you do that and you try and crucify God over and over again, you commit this fallacy because that's all over, that's all done. Because it's okay, because Jesus has covered that too. Because he took our pain and he bore our suffering, yet we consider him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. UBC, may we be set free from the eternal vortex of the anxiety of not enough. May we understand that it has already been forgiven and may we, in response, be a community of radical forgivers. Amen. Let's pray. God, we, um, we come before you humbly with the confession that we don't completely understand the, um, the mystery of, of atonement. We don't completely understand how our relationship with you is made whole again, but we trust that it is. We confess that the scripture often gives us images of the, the, um, the why, but not the how. And we can live in the mystery of, of not knowing the how. But Holy Spirit, we, um, we receive with gratitude our peace with God. And I pray that you would map us onto the trajectory of that reality in our own discipleship and confession and belief so that we could be peacemakers in the world, that we, the forgiven, would be the forgivers. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. At the conclusion of the preaching portion of the worship, we'd like to take time together and sit in silence and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps the Spirit will correct something I have said incorrectly. Perhaps the Spirit will minister something new. Let's listen together.